And we are live. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Survival Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November the 30th, 2022. This is episode 3207 of the Survival Podcast. I've got Reed Richard, not Richards, not the guy from the comic books. Really cool dude. Uh, we're going to be talking about some permaculture stuff, life as an anarchist. We're going to have some philosophical discussion today about the self and what that means. This should be a really fun episode. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is ButcherBox. I wanted to do something for you guys that are in the video anyway of ButcherBox and let you guys know that, like, one of the cool things about being a ButcherBox member is not just that I get a specific box of meat. I can change it out and all, but it's pretty much the same stuff that comes to my house uh, every month. I've got some recurring deals and stuff like that. But they also have member deals. And right now at the holidays, they have some holiday deals. And you can see some of the stuff they have, like a whole beef tenderloin, free-range turkeys, etc. You see what's in my box? Bone-in rib roast. I'm going to tell you a secret about why I got that. My son loves prime rib over every other thing on the planet other than his family. And so he doesn't know it, but for Christmas dinner, there won't just be a turkey. There will be a bone-in prime rib roast. That's why I did that. But if you're a member already, you may want to check these out. I've also done the boneless leg of lamb in a really slow, long sous vide cook. That was amazing. Good stuff here. Check it out. If you're not a member, remember, you become a member of ButcherBox and you're a member of the MSB, you get $10 off a month. That's $120 from one supporting vendor in my membership program which is on sale, but I'll tell you about that at the end of the show today. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. Uh, whenever I talk about Bitcoin or anything like that, people are always like, I believe in silver and gold. I'm not a either-or guy. I'm an everything guy. I believe in true diversity of your investments and your assets. So I stack silver and I stack gold. But we're coming up on Christmas, and I think that kids get way too much crap anymore, and, like, lasting value is something you can give kids, but there's no reason that lasting value can also be educational, informational, fun. So I, I challenge you today, check out Channel Bullion. Just go into, like, their silver inventory and look at some of the really cool things that you can expose kids to through silver uh, rounds and silver currency. South African, Australian silver coins, there's some really cool stuff there. Old school 90% and 40% silver coins from U.S. circulation, British silver coins, Apollo 11 silver, New Zealand silver, Australian silver, world silver coins, all kinds of stuff. You can even get silver bullets, silver dollars, and Mexican libertads. You know, it was a time that even Mexico's currency was backed by real hard currency. Lots of cool stuff. It's not very expensive. I have for my grandson kind of a treasure chest type thing where he can lock stuff away and be responsible for it himself. And uh, he, he really loves it. And so we add to that stack for him every year. Again, Jam Bullion, Butcher Boss, great sponsors of the show. If you like the show, you can always help us out by uh, supporting our sponsors. With that, let me bring our special guest, Reed Richard, on. Reed, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey there, Jack. Thanks for having me today. I'm glad to have you on. I always like when I have a guest on and I see their name and it makes me think of somebody like somebody famous. Like the first time I had Michael Jordan on, he literally put not that Michael Jordan. Uh, <laughs> Reed Richards, like I was like, that's from like comic book days, but it's Richard, not Richards. So uh, so it, it's funny. That's who I'm named after. That's my really? dad's favorite comic book character from the Fantastic Four. And uh, so it's been funny growing up with that. I'm also born on Halloween. And so that idea of, like, a comic book character getting dressed up for any holiday or just because it's your birthday has been fun. 
And then just for the people out there, uh, I come from a French lineage, and so my last name is actually Richard, but okay. everyone gets that wrong. It's not stressed out here. Well, you, you call me whatever you want. I should have known. My favorite pronoun is Papa, so. Favorite pronoun is Papa. All right, man. So, uh, you uh, give us a little bit of your background. We're going to talk more in, like, the philosophical world of anarchism and stuff today, but I, I want to just kind of start off with, like, where do you live and how you ended up there? So, walk us back to, like, you're in school trying to figure out what to do with your life. You're, you're not a dad yet. You're not a husband yet. And, and, and today you live a somewhat agrarian-style existence on a really cool little place in British Columbia. Did you grow up there? How did you, how did you end up there, if not? Like, what is kind of your background story of how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, I grew up as a mass hole, which is uh, anyone from Massachusetts, basically. Yeah. And I loved music. My dad was a musician as I first was born, and... He took other jobs later on, but I just wanted to play saxophone from the first time I saw a picture of it. So in high school, I was in the band program, and when I was in study hall, that was, let's ditch this class and go to the music room and just practice for the day. And with that, playing saxophone, I'm engaged with my lungs a lot, and I'm like, I want to play the longest notes possible. And as I'm going down that avenue, I realized that and I was playing a lot of improvisational music, too, that a lot of people in those realms were getting into more spiritual sides of things, yogas and other idea sets out there. And I was like, oh, yoga gets into this asana practice and pranayama practice where they're really focused on the breath and their body's alignment. And that opened up my whole view of, like, oh, we can combine a lot of these things so that spirituality can then come into playing music even more than it already is um, without having some over-doctrinating entity telling you exactly how to do it. So as I went into college, focusing still on music, I kept going down that improvisational rabbit hole and opening to different spiritual traditions. I heard you just found out about Alan Watts, and he's great, and I was just like, okay, I am not finding what I want here in college, and I don't really think this is an avenue that I need to take to be a performer. Like, let's just be serious about it. Um, And so in my senior year, I dropped out of college, and I had a tiny little job that didn't matter. I started taking martial arts overly uh, enthusiastically, and then it got to the point where it was just like, I don't really want to be breaking people's bones. I'm more interested in, like, the Aikido path where it's, like, you put someone in a wrist wrist lock and you bring their hand behind their back and you can manipulate them around without having to hurt them. Um, And so at that same time, I had a knee injury, and the doctors were like, you have torn tendons and ligaments and fractured cartilage. My knee was the size of a basketball when the injury happened. And they were like, you need surgery. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to do that. At that same time that I had dropped out of college, I was like, instead of being a musician, maybe I'll be a massage therapist. I like bodies and pressing on them. And so I went to school for that. And then in that school, they gave me a Reiki um, attunement, which is essentially just coming into, like, a recognition that, like, you know, supposedly Jesus healed people with his hands. Well, maybe we're more than what people have told us we are. And... Maybe any of us could have that ability if we 
aligned ourselves correctly. And I was fascinated by the energy circuitry of the body from chakras and meridians and microcosmic orbits. And I was just like, you know, the Western world doesn't really recognize these things at all, but these cultures have existed for thousands of years and they're not completely falling apart. So maybe there's things I should look at in that. I think it's good to question everything and at least listen to more stuff about it rather than just being closed off to it on face value. And so I went through that process for a while and then I was just like, okay, this is all well and good. When that knee injury happened, I couldn't work anymore. And so I had to move in with my parents for a moment and I love bicycling. I think it's one of the better forms of moving across landscapes that we can do even though it's obviously a lot more efficient to do it with a car if you want to get somewhere fast. And so I packed up all my stuff onto my bicycle trailer, which is like 13 foot long, so I could fit my instruments on it, my camping gear and stuff. And I basically took out across the country to go and see, like, how are other people living? I'm interested in living with other people. I recognize we're social creatures, and I'm not just going to go live on a mountain by myself and make this all happen. I'm actually, I like being engaged and having people to play music for and I always had a garden growing up because of my mom and my grandmother, and so I liked being in those situations too. So after several years of traveling around, and I would take trains or buses like long distances because I didn't feel like being in the middle of the country, and eventually uh, in that practice of being out in the forest and meditating and playing music to going into cities and different places where people were, I was told basically, like, you need to go check out Hawaii and be with the active flowing lava. And I wound up there. I was there for six years. And again, there's a lot of different people living very different lifestyles out there. So that was a perfect place to experiment more with all of that. And I found a curious dancing community out there called Ecstatic Dance, which is basically, it's, a, it's as if you're going to a nightclub, except it's during the day, and no one talks on the dance floor. Okay. And I have a big altar set up on the other side, so if you do want to meditate or have some more space like that, that's there for you. And I found that the freedom of movement that I was able to get into, along with combining all the different practices from martial arts to just working on my knee and repairing my knee, gave me space to come into greater alignment in my own body and strengthen my whole person. And I met my wife out there. We had our first child in Hawaii, an unassisted birth. And then I found for myself that getting married and having a kid put new lenses on, and my wife had her new lenses come on, and about a year later, she was like, I'm not going to stay here. I need to leave. She's from Canada. She grew up in Toronto, and she was like, I need to go back. I didn't expect to spend three years here. I'm going back to Toronto. And I saw with other people that you have a choice. You can choose to stay in Hawaii and live a blissful life, or you can maintain a connection with your family. But those things are different. And I was like, there's no way I'm losing connection with my kid. And so I was like, you're moving to Toronto? I'm going to Toronto. Let's stay together. We, When we got there, we were immediately like, I'm not going to stay here. And so a friend had some work in Santa Cruz. I went down to Santa Cruz for a bit with my family at this point. We started living in a tent at first there, and then we moved into a trailer, eventually a yurt. We were there for about two and a half years, and then it was time to leave there. Again, we were living with people there, and there's a fun thing of living with people where it doesn't always work. 
And it's just like different people have different agendas and they want different things to be happening, which is great. But if you see that and you know that you're not meant to be there and it's not your place, it's good to just find somewhere else to be. And so this, uh, as we were looking for places to be, the only place that had a space available that was in our price range to rent was here on Salt Spring Island, which is um, the Southern Gulf Islands in British Columbia. Um, like right across from me is San Juan Island, which is in the States. And so it's this funny little piece of the world. They call it the Hawaii of Canada because we're in a little sun pocket between Vancouver Islands Mountains and the mountains on the mainland that are keep the clouds mostly at bay. And it took some time here. So this is our third place that we're living at right now on the 20 acres. And when we were at our previous place and we knew we didn't want to be there anymore, it, to find housing on this island, it's, it can be challenging. And so when our friends who uh, run this place approached us saying, we'd like you to live over here, they're like, that sounds great. Is there a building home that can actually hold us? Because we're all pretty dynamic people. And at this point, we had had a second child. And as we were in the process of moving here, it took several months, we found out we were pregnant again. And so we just had another child this year, which keeps things very interesting. And that's that's the shortened version of yeah. how I got here. If you want to hear some more of that, you can tune into episode 2,591 of the Survival Podcast, where I chatted about this previously. That was back in 2020, right before the whole pandemic took place. Yeah. And it was funny to go back and listen to that and be like, oh, lots of stuff that I was chatting about going to happen in my life didn't take place because everything got screwed all up. Everything got changed, yeah. yeah. And for those that are not on the, uh, the video, while Reed was talking, I brought up one of my favorite quotes from Mark Twain, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And I, that's a lot of what I heard in, in your discussion there. By going to all these other places, meeting all these other people, being exposed to all these other ideas, it, it changes your perspective as a whole. And I think what we as humans do is we adopt pieces and parts that work for us. We're all... We're all in the end practitioners of Jeet Kune Do. We, we take what works for us and we dismiss what doesn't. The problem is since most people end up kind of in their bubble, their echo chamber, and they don't get the there, – there's a lot of things that maybe they would adopt if they right. took long enough to, to understand why someone else even feels that way. I often say that, like, one of the biggest things we can do – I'm very opinionated and I'm very convicted in my principles and my beliefs, but I always try to entertain the other side – I often talk about steel manning the other side. Like, so you, can you make the best case possible for the alternative view to what you have? Because even if you don't end up accepting that view, and you probably won't if you actually know why you believe what you believe in the first place, but at least you'll understand the okay. other side. And until you can yeah. understand the other side, you really don't understand yourself because you've created this kind of uh, metaphorical brick wall of, of – of ideology and each one of those bricks becomes so important that it not fall because if it fell, well, by God, the whole thing might fall apart. And this whole construct you've made around yourself that is what you are and what you believe in might all go away. And that's terrifying to people, right? That's, that's more terrifying than freedom to people. Yep. And it's also the kind of thing where if you're not able to, you know, express the other person's like idea sets, 
It yeah. means that you're not going to be able to formulate an argument to actually share where, whatever the differences are between your idea sets. Yeah, because you don't know what they are. That's right. Because <laughs> you don't know what they are. You just know, yeah. I don't like that person. I disagree with them. Yeah. So um, a lot of what I've read in your notes that you submitted to be on the show this time uh, talked about the self, and I think that's kind of what we're getting to because by understanding others, we understand ourselves. How would you define self? Sure. And let me start with uh, chatting for a quick second about Paul Wheaton's eco scales or eco levels, where it yeah. goes from zero to ten and set holders at ten and yeah. zero, like you don't care if you're burning just your gas outside of not even going anywhere. Yeah. And the idea that like people who are like two or three levels above you seem crazy. And so, like for me, I feel like a lot of people I've met over the course of my life are like, Reed, you're crazy. And I'm like, oh, I'm living a life that's so much further down on whether it's the eco levels or levels of trust and any number of other things. It's just like the lifestyle I've chosen appears crazy. And so I think that when we have a view of self, like a lot of people, we can acknowledge like this body is myself. That's pretty easy. Uh, and then you were chatting before the show about uh, kids and emotions and how they can flip back and forth and blow up. Like we have emotional bodies. We also have mental bodies and we have a spiritual body. And with that, I would say that our physical body is intrinsically connected to the earth. And so to look at the earth as our own body, that to me is an appropriate aspect of self. It's why when different indigenous cultures were taken from the lands that they originated from, or however that migration worked, and moved somewhere else, they had lost their ecological connection. They no longer knew all the plants that were there. They didn't know how the watershed necessarily moved through that system. And so in that space, oh, there I am. That's funny. There you are. <laughs> There's a piece of the self that is being a contrarian. The notion that, like, just because you're in a particular culture that, like, being able to just think about different ideas outside of that culture, like how many women in the world don't have the right to get an education? I think that's ridiculous, you know? But could we communicate to people there that, like, it's good to get an education, and why do you want that? Because we have a mental body. And when we allow ourselves to be educated, we grow as people. And if there's any part of yourself that's not growing, in my opinion, you're probably dying at that point. And I see a lot of people going around that are very clearly physically unhealthy. And you're like, you're just waiting for death. You have all these comorbidities and whatever. Well, if you're not emotionally agile and have emotional maturity, my opinion is the same is true with that. It's like you should be able to hear someone else's completely radically different view and not just blow up and use ad hominem as your first form of defense to that. Mental uh, abilities and your mental body is kind of that same way. It's like someone can tell you a concept that's, really a big stretch. Like, how does DNA work? I'm not even sure. I'm still working out that one. <laughs> but the ability to like, be open to it and stretch out that part of ourselves is important. And the same goes for spirituality. Like, how many times do you see someone from an Abrahamic religion complaining to another person of a different Abrahamic religion that they're wrong? And just like, <laughs> it's okay to relax, guys. You have the same basic foundation here. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know? And even the notion yeah. of like, hey, people in different indigenous cultures have a completely different spirituality 
And again, maybe there's little pieces from that that are good that can make our own lives better. Then in that, having our physical bodies, a lot of people seem like they're cut off in their sense of self when it relates to not just dying, but also sexuality. And so recognizing that, like, that sexuality is a creative energy, and it doesn't have to get expressed through sex. It can get expressed through, you know, in your garden doing stuff. It can get expressed through any number of creative outlets, and that having a clear channel of working with that energy in these other areas, I find is an important place that I see a lot of different people stagnating because they're closed off to that, often because of different worldviews and mentalities that were pushed onto them as kids of like, this is the right way to be and you got to fall right between these lines or you're going to hell and you're a bad person. And I'm just like, I personally am going to question the entirety of like what makes a good or bad person. And I feel like all of us intrinsically know in ourselves, like you shouldn't step on puppies. It will kill them. That's not a nice thing to do. Sure. At, this, at the same time, like, oh, I'm going to step on rats if I see a rat, you know. There's certain life forms I want to proliferate and others I don't. And even in the proliferating of life forms, i got to know, like, maybe it's not the best idea to just set all the pigs free to go and tear up the earth. Maybe that will cause unneeded consequences. Although, pigs are delicious, so, <laughs> you know. And the earth I, I'm still looking for the great scourge of feral hogs in Texas that supposedly exist here because – I'm eating as many of them as I can, and, and I can't find as many as I want to eat. But, but right. they do cause problems, but I think we find those problems are in pockets. And it's it's interesting it. as I listen to you talk, like, and you mention, like, women not being able to learn to read or to get an education. And I think about how often two cultures, if you have, let's say, people from them talking to each other, can be horrified by the other's culture. Yep. So I think about a simple thing like a uh, simple, not really simple, but uh, a common debated thing is like the ownership of firearms. So right. to me, the fact that you could tell another human being that they cannot own a means of defense, I, I find that to be horrific. The fact that for when I was in when I was in uh, New Hampshire years and years ago to speak at a thing, but I flew into Massachusetts. I made a comment during my talk about a knife that I carried, and somebody said, "Did you fly into Boston?" And I'm like, "Yeah," and they're like. So did you have that knife on you when you were on your way up here from Boston? I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, if you got it pulled over in, in Massachusetts, that's a felony. Right? So I could be thrown in prison because the length of the blade was an inch too long or something. And to me, I find that all horrific. However, when I've met people from London and they realize that you can just walk around with a knife in America? Yeah. Why not? Well, they're horrified by that because people get stabbed in London all the time because, well, it's hard to get your hands on a gun in London. So... Or you talk to somebody that's from a country that has very strict gun control, and and they they come to a state with open carry or something, see somebody walking around with a gun, that's horrific to them. To me, it would be horrific. That guy's over there minding his own business. He's not bothering anybody. And two guys in costumes will grab him and put him in a cage. And it's interesting what we become comfortable with and what we become uncomfortable by. And... So to me, the more I learn, the more I gravitate toward the rights and freedoms of the individual versus Absolutely. the comfort of the collective. And yep. that's, that's about self, because when you're confident in yourself, you're okay with other people taking liberties that you would not as long as they don't harm somebody else. Totally. And a lot of that I find is also about, like, 
finding the edge. You know, in permaculture, we learn that, like, the most amount of diverse life is happening on the edge of systems when they meet. And I think, like, a lot of people, they're not actually living on the edge of their life, you know. And I'm going to only take so much risk with my physical body, but the idea of, you know, chatting about things that might be emotional, mental, or spiritual, it's like, take some risk. Like, what do you have to lose with those bodies of yourself? You know, the worst case scenario, you'll go to therapy afterwards, or you drop learning a particular program because you realize you're not interested in it, or you've heard enough about a particular person's spiritual background or path or thing, and you're like, I'm good, I'm going to go back to whatever it is. But when you do find those little gems and jewels in there, it's like, oh, now there's something new, and it's because you explored that edge piece. Like, I remember when I went to Panama for a moment, there's a lot of people with guns on the street. Yeah. In front of buildings and other things. And I was like, oh, this is new for me. Yeah. And I like this. That's good. It's yeah. the kind of thing where, you know, the government has a monopoly on violence. I yeah. think that's terrible. Yeah. Just to clarify for people, I, I was stationed in Panama for two years. So oh, nice. these people that you see with guns on the street of Panama, they're not like just walking around randomly. There's security for different businesses and stores and stuff like that primarily. So you go into totally. a jewelry store, there's a dude standing out there with an 870. Right. And like and he means business, man. Like you're and so to me I actually found that very comforting because Panama City has some places where especially if you're Rubio Azul, man, you don't necessarily want to be, you know, a year after just cause. So mm-hmm. having these dudes around that were armed and, you know, in some means of defense, to me that was actually comforting. Absolutely. And the notion that like I didn't see many of them wearing a particular uniform. No. Like, when I just see a cop Sometimes my heart will just start racing a little bit. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I should take an extra breath because our breath is one of the things that helps to regulate our emotional bodies. And it's just like learning to be comfortable in those situations is often just about taking a breath. But it's like, oh, you know, because they're not wearing a particular uniform, I'm not having this usual response. And I'm just like, that's cool. I'm glad that there's people around who can, like, defend a given situation or stand up for a certain thing. I'm not the biggest guy in the world. I mean, I can defend myself for sure. But, yeah, you know. You know, when you're in a strange place, you don't know who's looking out for you and who's not. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And maybe I was a little bit too idealistic because for, for all I know, that guy might have wanted me gone. But in the, end, in the end, it actually seemed like it was a very stabilizing thing. Like in the parts of Panama City where you had those people out and about, you see a lot of stuff go wrong, and you make the right wrong turn down the wrong corner, especially after dark, and people oh, yeah. here. It was That's right. It was, it was interesting. Um, you also mentioned tending. So what is yes. this? So in having a, I have a lovely three-quarter acre parcel that I get to do some farming on. And I'm personally right now debating these different words, farming, gardening, tending, and how they relate. Farming seems like you should be making a profit on that. Gardening mm-hmm. seems like it's for your own personal benefit. And then as you were talking in the Monday show about homesteading, it's like, you know, take your excess surplus and go give it to those neighbors who aren't doing it for themselves, and share that around. And then tending, I put in this other category where it's this recognition of all these different body aspects, this recognition that, like, the earth is another part of myself, that self-care is earth care. And in a bunch of different cultures, there's an acknowledgement that consciousness is not solely possessed by people, that plants have it, animals have it, maybe the mountains have it, that the earth as a whole has it, it's the Gaia hypothesis and you know 
you and I having a conversation, we can clearly tell that we're communicating together. It might be a little more difficult for people to understand that plants are communicating as well. There's a lot of good research that's just come out to show how much communication is happening in the forest floor. There's a lot of, same with the organisms of the soil. And when we quiet ourselves down through meditative practices, it can be possible to pick up on what the plants or the other organisms around are trying to communicate. And I like to personally utilize um, free writing, where you're not necessarily trying to make any sense, but you're just open to receiving information. You can ask the plant, the garden, the ground a question, and then you can just start writing to see if anything of relevance comes forward in that. The same can happen with drawing. There's we put so much importance on verbal language that we often miss out on all the other forms of language that are out there. We clearly also have body language, which is why it's nice to not wear masks so we can see all the micro muscles of each other's faces and know like about where someone's coming from. And with the plants, you know, if the leaves aren't yellowing, you might not know if there's a deficiency in like magnesium or something of the sort. But before that yellowing happens, if there's a magnesium deficiency in the soil, you could actually pick up on subtle frequencies that are being relayed because this conversation is trying to happen at least from the plant's perspective. Um, There's also a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. I don't know if you've heard of that. I got some notes here for myself and your shuffle through. Braiding Sweetgrass? Yes. Okay. And in this book... Uh, Robin is the lady's first name. She has a moment where she's with these beans in her garden, and she realizes that she she loves being in her garden. Most gardeners do. And she then questions the notion, like, maybe the beans love me as much as I love them. Hmm. And that thing of, like, I've heard it said from the Chinese that, like, the garden's favorite thing is the gardener's shadow. And this notion that, like, all these other organisms are actually trying to communicate with us in some fashion or other. It's not going to look like humans communicating, but it is a place where there's a lot of extra information around when we are actually open to it. And so when you tend a baby or a grandchild, there's a level of care that you bring to it that when you're just babysitting someone else's kid, you don't necessarily have it there. And so, and the same goes with like an elder. If you've ever had the experience of, you know, having a grandparent or a parent who is in the process of dying and they need extra care, there's a level of care that you as an offspring, as a descendant of theirs, are going to bring to it that potentially some other caregiver person who's paid isn't necessarily going to bring to that same situation. And so that's, and the same goes with like having chickens And that could be like having a dog that's like your pet compared to having a dog that's just to keep all the livestock, you know, out of trouble. There's still different, these different levels of tending that are going to take place in those relationships. And the more aware we are of these other body aspects of ourselves, the more channels of communication can be open to receive and then allow those relations to grow uh, more productively. Very, very cool, man. Um, I like the whole tending aspect in of itself just because I, I kind of feel like we're either imposing our will on plants and nature or we're 
collaborating with. Like there's mm-hmm. only there's only two ways we we can either do nothing, we can collaborate, or we can impose our will. And imposing our will generally results in straight lines and monocrops and all the things that cause us great deals of problem uh, yeah. in the world, in my opinion. And when you talk like that, people often say, well, how would we – hold on, i got to get rid of the porn survivor here. Um, you wonder why they show up for a discussion on anarchy and, and permaculture. But, like, so people always get, like, well, how are we going to feed the world? Well, you ask that question because we built a system that's predicated on doing things the way that we do them. Right? And yeah. if we had built a system more like you or I would be for, and you talked about changing that system, I think there'd actually be a lot more concern. Like, why would you, why would you mess this up? Like, if you totally. if, if you had a solid permaculture based culture around the world with different methods of food production in different regions, because not everything works everywhere, but okay. we had this very integrated lifestyle, and somebody described what we have today as a solution to make it better, it would be abject, abject horror by anybody that would be involved with, with, with having that change. You would never choose this unless you had something worse to begin with. And I think that's the, you know, we, as a species, we mined the planet instead of tended the planet. Absolutely. And we ended up at a point where we were so deplete that, what we did that we call modern agriculture today, which is very, very old in, in its basic methods, was what we had left. That's what right. we had to do. And that's when people first came to North America from Europe, they were astounded by the abundance. They were astounded Absolutely. by the fact that Native Americans drank water out of a creek. Yeah. Right? They didn't make beer out of it first. They just drank it. And they didn't die. Like, well, that's because they knew don't crap in the creek upstream of where you're going to drink the water. They basic things. And so – Tending puts us much more into that place of an understanding of our own finite self, that we will, regardless of what you believe about us spiritually, we mm-hmm. either go on or we don't after our our shell crumbles, but we will die as, as a being on this planet. We will cease to exist. And, and it's so important. Our time here is limited, and if you actually get that, then you should be thinking about, well, what – what I do then is going to affect my my sons, my grandsons, and my great grandchildren, etc. And I need to be thinking about that instead Absolutely. of what can I get while I can get it. And that's where we, I think that's where we've ended up in a lot of trouble. And there's this very subtle difference between farming and tending. Yeah, right? and actually thinking about take. So to tend to me means to care for. That's right. Right. It means to care for. Where farming means to get. To take. Absolutely. Right? That's as what much it as you means, can. Right? To, to, yeah. to extract where tend means I really need to think about what I'm doing, you know. You often think, you know, if you look at, and this is why I, I tend to like animal-centric cultures, I have a preference for them, I guess, because if you think about what does a shepherd do with the flock, a shepherd tends the flock. Absolutely. Right? So the, the first duty of the shepherd is protection. Yep. Right, I want to protect the flock. So, yes, I might eat you and shear your wool, but I will protect you first. And so that that, that also connotates then this concept of protection of, of the thing that you actually have the privilege of being able to protect. Absolutely. And it and that's the good piece, that it is a privilege. That I've heard it said in other uh, indigenous cultures here in North America that instead of having rights, that they had obligations. And so their relationship to the land, rather than it being like a right or a privilege, was an obligation. 
it's like, I better darn well make sure that this is in good to better shape for the next generations to come. Because if I don't, I'm leaving them with a cesspool or a big dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. It's like, you know, our number one export, as you mentioned in the past, of the United States, is of the topsoil. That's just running off from all this erosive mining type agriculture how much can we get out of it rather than like you know the breadbasket of the united states when the buffalo were still roaming it it was that same kind of sheep herder thing it was like there's a lot of people making those buffalo move they're not going to stay in one spot yeah and then you get you know as ruminants move across the planet they are by and large improving the quality of the planet yeah and if you think about it there are no ruminants that really stay put they don't. That's right. You know, yep. your browsing ruminants have less of a migration pattern than, than grazing ruminants, but still they all they all move by necessity due to predation and due to the fact that, well, I ate this, so now I need to go over here and eat this. And That's right. It's almost like there's an intelligent design behind the entire way everything works. It's crazy. It's almost like they're tending the earth. Yeah. yeah. You know? And it's everything, right? Like the, one of the permaculture principles is everything gardens, and that always takes me back to Panama. And the leafcutter ants, and oh, you yeah. see these little these little trails going through these fields, like half mile long little trail, and it was the ants going back and forth, and they didn't they didn't eat the grass. It's their just their repetitive motion wore a path like a human wears a path, just a tiny one, and they were totally. taking the uh, the mangrove or not the mangrove the uh, the mango leaves. Oh yes. And then they take those leaves down into their little nest, and they actually chew the leaves up. And they cultivate a fungus. They don't eat the leaves. They eat the fungus that they grow on the leaves. Now, that's that's kind of insane to me that nature has that level of innate intelligence. And, and then, really? you know, that's going to have an effect on the topography and the land and infiltration of water because they don't last forever. They'll go away, and then they have these caverns that are infiltrated with water instead of running off. And that takes me back to, like, what the Native Americans used to say when the, when the, the, the prairie will die when the prairie dogs are gone. Like, right. as soon as the prairie dog's not there to let the water infiltrate, you get this hard pack. And it, 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 you can just come up with example after example after example of the earth tending to itself through its through its natural organisms. And I think we get in trouble and we forget that we're one of those. We take humans totally. and nature and we separate them. Like, the humans should all be in their cities and nature should be over here and you can go look at it but don't touch it. And I think that that takes away the concept of what we're here to do in the first place. If you look at what we can do, if we try, our net benefit is massive. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the ants is a great thing to bring up from the notion of, like, there's a species that is domesticating other species. Yeah. And it shows that, like, domestication is actually another aspect of being wild. And, you know... Humans are clearly the most domesticated species on the planet, and then it's usually the things that we're domesticating that come next in line of that domestication. Um, and I think that part of, like you brought up the cities there, and I think that when Europeans, because there's a lot of messed up stuff in Europe, but there were like, you know, a bunch of tribes all de- back in the day doing all their thing, and then different empires came in and took over at different points in time, and then people left there for this new world, and with the idea of having a space to be free, that you weren't going to have to, you know, bow your head to every little royal dictate that came through up to the point that we had, you know, the Revolutionary War and all those things try to, like, 
reinstate that in a fashion that made it possible for people to continue. And the curious thing is, in that process of domesticating the Europeans and coming over into the New World, we started putting these shells around like, you know, the church was involved in your spiritual life and you had to go through them to get that. They had universities and educated people who were in charge of your mental life and you had to go through them to be an expert. We're not even going to talk about emotions. Give us a break. That's just some female stuff that nobody cares about. Let's just keep it. And then you have your physical body. Use it as long as it works until it breaks down and then get out of our way because you're not useful anymore. And each of those things, as I like look back across different lineages in my own life and things that are happening in society, whenever those moments happen for an individual, it kind of creates a knot in their ethereal body structure. I say ethereal in the notion that like I can't physically see my emotional body. I can't physically see my mental body or my spiritual body. Um, and these knots over time develop little stagnations in us, places that we're not willing to grow. You know, you spoke about a person having, like, bricks around their ability to, like, hear other people's perspectives and things. Like, all these knots function like that. And then those subtle knots can become, like, cancers in our physical body. They can become ailments in our physical body because the life force of existence, like right now, if I don't know how much sunlight you're getting on you, but as the sun hits the planet, we absorb it into our body, and then we refract out a bunch of it, which gives us the coloration that we see. So mm-hmm. everything on the planet is getting flooded by that. So in a certain context, everything that's here is also condensed sunlight. And in that condensation of it, we're crystallizing it into, like, our physical body. Like, all we're getting nourished from it in a different way than plants, clearly. You know, we're not completely powered by it. And, but those knots, as they build up, make that death process take place. And there's processes people can do to unwind those knots and to let go of those old triggers that are in their bodies and being. And then the curious thing about knots is, you know, where would we be without knots? We wouldn't have made fishing nets. We wouldn't have, uh, you know, all the different lines of thread and such that take place in our world to help us be connected on the interwebs and stuff like this. There's beautiful knots like the Celtic knots. There's knots in the landscape where, you know, the what is it? The confines of your landscape are going to make a more eloquent design. Mm-hmm. And so it's a notion like, oh, well, if you have a river flowing through your yard, that's a pretty big obstruction. So that's yeah. kind of a knot that you have to figure out how to work with that knot to make it function better for you. And just this idea that there's all these different knots that we're being with, and it's fun to play with different knots and to give ourselves these challenges of different kinds of knots to play with. And that those knots can bring beauty and function more into our life, but it's by dealing with them that it brings that. So if we're just ignoring all the little triggers, like someone says, you know, a pronoun or whatever the things are today. I don't even know why people are triggered for the most part. Yes. Whatever traumas that they experienced growing up that they haven't dealt with. And it's like, well, once you deal with those things, you have more ability to accomplish more. You have more life that can just flow through you to do different things. And if you're interrelating with a landscape and other animal systems, you realize that those knots are like these beautiful potentials to create more abundance and resiliency around. And to be able to just like take off whatever lens, worldview, mental space we've had that we don't want to look at that stuff, to actually go in and look at it and deal with it for a moment 
And then maybe we're just like, that thing just sucked. This experience I had, it was just terrible. I don't need to look at it anymore. I can now move on with my life because I'm not upset about it from a place where I can't brush my teeth in the morning and get out of bed or take care of myself. And i got to watch another inspiring YouTube video to then go and drink a coffee or whatever. It's like <laughs> i got to be inspired by YouTube to drink my second coffee. That's that, that that is that is the first world in a in a sad nutshell. And don't forget to pick up your avocado toast from Starbucks. Um, you know those are they're tasty. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you're on a shared property, 20 people including kids. It's about yep. 20 acres. What's life like that? And kind of tell us a little bit about like the 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 ethos of your community and and, and what life is like there. Sure. We're working out the ethos right now. So we had a meeting earlier in this year to see um, where we're all at. Like, what common ground points do we have to work from? And in this community, one of the reasons that we were interested to move here is because they're celebrating the Sabbath. And by Sabbath, I'm looking at, like, the pagan Sabbath or the Celtic Sabbath, depending on whose wheel of time and seasons you're working with, and that connection to, like, I have Irish heritage, my wife has Irish heritage, um, my daughter, my eldest daughter every now and then is learning a little bit of Gaelic here and there, and some of our, many of the other people who live here have a bit of that heritage in them, and so some of them are learning the songs from Gaelic, Irish, Scottish traditions. There's also a piece of, like, when, so there's, two properties, basically, two 10-acre parcels side-by-side, one of which has been held for about 15 years and has the beginnings of a food forest going on and garden beds, and that's one, I'd say it's probably about five or so acres of it are fenced in, and then the other half has maybe like an acre or so orchards on it. It's very rocky. And the a few of the words that we thought of that we wanted to like collaborate around were resiliency, play, um, education, particularly because we all have most of us have young children, and then like a big question mark of like what do we how do we do with that? And so interesting pieces are that not everyone thinks the same about everything. And as I was just talking about different knots in people and different triggers and things, like, you know, I, for one, am coming from more of an abundance mindset. Like, I might plant 20 cabbages, and if a deer comes in and eats three or four of them, I don't care. Frankly, if a deer comes in and eats 20 of them, I'm like, this is just a lesson. I'm going to go find where the deer is getting in. I'm going to fix that, and I'm going to try to be ready to harvest the deer next time it comes in. Whereas other people might just get completely upset, like, oh, my gosh, all my food for the winter is gone. And I'm like, is it really? (laughs) And and the difference between the fear mindset and anxiety mindset in space people coming from compared to the abundance mindset, compared to, like, individuals who are like, I would rather just grow my own stuff, and then when you need help for a moment, you can just ask for some help, and if I'm available, I'll come and help you. So all of those dynamics are, like, shuffling around and playing. We have on Mondays what we call it farm day, we get together in the morning at 9.30. We 
basically sit in a circle. We'll have a moment of check-in for each person to share what's happened in their week. And then we go into logistics moment. So we have a shared studio space. Um, it's got a tall ceiling in it with a big loft. So I've strung an aerial fabric up in there. If you don't know what that is, it's like Cirque du Soleil when they have a big fabric coming down and people wind themselves up in it and do all kinds of tricks and stretches and things. Um, there's also enough instruments to have a band play in the space. And so lots of different events happen in that space from Sabbath ritual celebration stuff to women's groups to men's groups to children-based groups, to people who are doing weaving stuff. Um, the island that I live on has a very active, like, let's call it alternative skill sets happening. So there's forest schools, wild immersion-based schools. Those go on for a while there. Um, but in the community here, we're really still gelling. One family moved, so there's one family with a, about to be a four-year-old that owns the place. Then another family with two kids, I want to say eight and four, uh, moved in last November. My family moved in in February. Now we're up to five people in our family, an 11, uh, two-year-old, and a five-month-old, along with my wife and I. And then the fourth family moved in, what was that, May, June time, I want to say? And then there's a few other people who live here who either are, let's say, single parents, co-parents, or single individuals. Um, and it felt like all the like we all kind of came in, and now the dust is like settling, and it's still hard to see through the dust. Like we asked ourselves, do we want to garden together? And there's a lot of different ideas that came out from concerns to not really, and <laughs> because of the acreage on the other side that's been fenced and is like a mini food forest going on. You know when people get excited about permaculture and suddenly they're just planting all the comfrey everywhere? Yeah. Yeah. And all the other perennial plants everywhere? Yeah. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> and I don't know how much time you spent with blackberry. We have a lot of blackberry that grow on the island. And it's the kind of thing where you cut it down. It's going to grow back like a piece the size of my finger knuckle of root is growing back. And it can be like as thin as one of my one of my tusk hairs here. And so getting rid of blackberries is a serious mission in the same way that getting rid of any of these other perennials is a serious mission. And so I was like, instead of like actually gardening together, can we just set up a farm stand at the top of our driveway, take these different medicinal plants and... Um, you know, you can make compost teas and whatever you want from the company yeah. and some of the other stuff. Actually process through some of that stuff together, put it up at the farm stand, tell everyone it's there. Any money that comes in, then we can use that money to further whatever kinds of gardening things we want to do. Yeah, it's always been a challenge for me in my head to try to make community work. And, and what I've always come down with is kind of, I think what it takes to have the best chance of success, because there's no guarantees, is people have kind of their own space. Yep. And they can do their thing with their own space, and if there's community space, then that community space has certain rules and ways that we engage with each other, and then the biggest rule is leave your neighbor alone. Mm -hmm. if, if they're doing something and it's not hurting you and you don't like it, don't look at it. Totally. Right? And that, that, if you can get that far, I think you get further than most attempts at these communities, because I think what happens is 
it's the romance problem, right? Like with with, with girls growing up in the eighties and seventies and the heyday of Disney, it was the princess fantasy that would ruin relationships oh, yeah. because they expected to meet Prince Charming and everything be perfect forever. It doesn't work that way. So people yeah. get the permaculture or the libertarian or whatever it is in their head, and the community should be like this. Well, then you get another human being. They probably have a different idea. Even Absolutely. if you're 90% the same, what are you going to focus on? The 10% you're different on. Yeah. And so to me, by having kind of your own defined area, like this is where I can paint my vision and you can paint your vision, and we can. It's, it's basically a neighborhood where we agree to leave each other alone. I mean, <laughs> but yet still cooperate where it makes sense, where we feel like it, like it, and have community, but also kind of have boundaries. Absolutely, and that's like the curious thing that I'm finding in this particular situation is where are those boundaries? So we have different storage containers on the property. One of them had all the shop tools in it. And we wanted to move that to on top of another shipping container that has it's just a storage spot. And um, so on a farm day, we ended up taking out everything from that shipping container and prepping it to get moved. And then a person had some car troubles and ended up buying another vehicle. And now they have two vehicles that are parked in front of this storage container where the other one's going to get moved to that are yeah. blocking it and, like, their wheels are off and things are happening. It's just like... What's going on here? When is this vehicle going to move? And all the tools are, you know, they're in like a little covered carport. Yeah. But they're basically in the weather right now. Yeah. That's not the best. And so those things of like, sometimes you need to have a heavy hand with just recognizing like, nope, we need this thing moved. We need it moved now. If you're not doing it, we're just going to make it happen. Yeah. And... You know, we don't always have, like, as much space as we might want. Like, a lot of the homes here are tiny homes. So the place, Salt Spring Island, it's funny in the regards of, like, it's a big enough population that there's a hospital here. And you have a lot of old people retiring here or just, like, wanting to escape the city because it's a quick plane flight to Vancouver or Victoria. And it's gorgeous. But then you also have, like, a really good, I mean, for Canada, a really good school system that's here with... Every school has a school garden at it and other things going on. And so you have a lot of families as well. But there's not enough workers to have housing on the island to support the local grocery store or any of the other things. And the bylaws that exist on the island are such that they're like, you can't build tiny homes here. Oh, my gosh. What do you mean? Yeah. You're going to have people just live on your property and work and help yeah. out the greater community? So there's lots of tiny homes, but tiny homes don't always come with as much land around them as you need to function with what you want. And so I'm like, I don't know how you guys work out all these details. Because I'm on the other side of the property, it feels like I'm in zone four or five in, like, the permaculture space compared to everyone else's ones and twos that overlap a whole bunch. Yeah. And I was like, I can't even hear your kids scream when they're screaming just with the way the land's laid out. Yeah. I'm like, which is largely fine, but other issues come up. I'm like, not my issue. I'm going to stay out of it for now. <laughs> and, and I think that that's, like, an important thing to know, just, like, when you're living with others, there's a time when it's like, I I don't need to deal with this issue, actually. This is someone else's issue. And, again, sometimes people, where they're coming from, it's just like, I'm not sure what you're holding on to from your past, but it's affecting your present, and I don't need that problem either, actually. Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not here to be your therapist. 
I know that therapy can be a good thing, but, like, I'm not that professional. Yeah. But it's great when we are able to, like, work with the edges of people. So as a musician, I'm comfortable with music stuff. I don't even mind picking up instruments I don't know how to play and figuring something out, whereas other people are like, I've never done that before. So there'll be different times when we get together to just engage in playful activities. Some people, I don't know if you know the game Magic the Gathering. It's like a card game that's out there. I know of it, but I I don't know it. (laughs) Right. So one of the people who lives here loves that game. Uh, And he was like, would you ever play? And I'm like, "Uh, if you give me a deck to play with, at some point I'll play. Just like I could play a game of chess. You know, we have a nice sauna that's on the property. I'm like, I'll take a sauna with you. I'm like, I'm up for almost anything. Like, I'm not a sports guy, but I'm in a men's group, and they like playing sports. So I'm like, I'll go out and play some sports. I don't care at all about it. But I'll play, and as long as you realize, like, I'm not playing to win the game. I'm playing to see how much fun I can have. Yeah. And just that notion of, like, when I get together with you, I want to have fun. Like, I'm not here on this planet to, like, live in drudgery and not have a good time. You know, your catch line is if times get tough or even if they don't. Yeah. I'm on the, I don't think they're going to get tough. I hear a lot of people complain about it, but people have been complaining for my whole life. And I haven't seen the world completely flip on its head, even though it did for a couple of years there. Yeah. I'm just like, and even then, I'm like, I think we should live our best life. I'm not going to just go by someone else's edict about how to live and what not to do. Like, you're telling me not to get together. I'm going to keep getting together with the people I want to. Yeah. Yeah, in, in, in illusions, Richard Box says, we are the otters of the universe. We are here to learn and have fun. And yeah. that's that's the, the best meaning of life that I, I've discovered in my journey now of over 50 years is we are the otters of the universe. And, totally. And that's what leads me, and I'm interested in what leads you because you're a self-described anarchist. That's kind of what led me in truth to anarchism. Like if I'm going to learn and have fun, then I can't be constrained by your bullshit when I'm not hurting anybody else. That's and, right. And, you know, I – I came up pretty anti-political as a kid. I didn't care as I got older and I started to see the impact of government. I became, you know, small government Republican, which is just nonsense, twaddle words that don't mean anything, but the marketing works. So, and, yeah. and over time, I actually became to the point where I was actually a libertarian candidate for uh, for government in the state of Texas and, and eventually made the, the leap to anarchism and ignored all the people say, well, it will never work. Like, I didn't say that it was for you. Like, to me, it's more of an ideological decision. I don't believe that I can convey a right I don't have to another party. So I look at government and I see the vast majority of it, what it does is completely illegitimate. So I, what I mean by that, Reed, I don't have the authority to come to you and say, because you've earned – 100,000 Canadian dollars or 50,000 Canadian dollars or whatever it is, you owe me 10% of that. I don't have that authority. We would call that mafia extortion. So I can't vote to grant it to somebody else. And so to me, it was like mostly, initially anyway, an ideological decision. Was it similar for you? Somewhat. Um, When I first heard about anarchists, I was in high school in history class, and I heard about the Chicago's Haymarket Square riots that took place. And then there's a bunch of anarchists who uh, were basically put on trial for causing that to take place. It was, you know, another one of these, like, completely rigged jury situations. And in that, as that happened, and this was during the workers' rights movements back in the day for, like, an eight-hour workday. I'm like, if you don't know about this, like, you might want to go back and look history up to whoever's listening out there. 
um, because people fought to get it down to an eight-hour workday. And that doesn't mean you can't do other stuff, but, you know, if you want to show up at the steel factory, that's another thing altogether. And in learning about the anarchist then, I was like, oh, I feel like I like this basic idea. And being a musician and liking improvisation where it's like, yeah, you might be playing with some other people, but you're listening. You're having an active conversation. And just because they're playing in one key doesn't mean you can't play in a different key. And that thing of, like, hearing those tensions building and being comfortable with letting tensions build and then having their natural resolution take place. Um, and so I started researching anarchism a bit and different anarchists. And the one I came across in particular who I was just, like, spellbound with was Emma Goldman. Okay. And and early in her anarchist life, she said this thing, like, I don't want to be part of any revolution that doesn't include dancing. And I'm just like... I love that. Yeah, we should be having fun and enjoying ourselves. And she was also so, like, committed to her ideals that she uh, helped her partner, whose name I forget right now, plan the assassination of Henry Clay Frick, who was a steel magnate at the time. Uh, my recollection is that was unsuccessful. But shortly thereafter that, um, President McKinley was assassinated in 1901, if I remember correctly, and she was blamed for inciting the person who tried to kill him. And I'm just like, I think we need extreme measures. I don't think we need to go killing anybody, but I think just choosing to live a different lifestyle is actually an extreme method to, like, go about things. And that in doing that, you have to develop a lot of trust with people. So she ended up becoming a nurse and going around and talking in different... And so she was a Russian immigrant. She spoke a bunch of different languages, including English. And then as she was going out as a nurse, she was educating women about their bodies and all the different cycles and stuff. And, you know, that was not happening at the time, you know. So she, and then she went off and she lived a very exciting life going to many different places that had exciting different revolutionary moments happening. And I was like, and she realized that it was the consciousness of the people that had to change before you could actually change the system that was governing them. And I was just like, this seems like an important key. Most people I chat with, again, when I get on to, like, really different topics, like what our bodies are made of or, you know, how to garden, how to tend, or any of these other ways of being productive and non-productive members of society, you have to develop trust with the people to get there. And I was having a conversation last night in the sauna with my friend, Mike Khan, shout out, and I was asking him about some different men's group and work in this area, and I was just like, you know, the ladies seem like, on their radical progressive side, like they're getting really in touch with their bodies. They'll talk about their menstruation cycles and all these other things that go along with being a lady. And I don't really hear men talk about being men and what's going on with their bodies and aging or staying healthy into old age and different things you can do to maintain your health. And I was like, what do you think's up with this? And he's like, I think it's about trust. And as I was chatting with him, I realized that Paul Wheaton's eco levels actually relate to a trust level, too. And so people who have, like, extreme trust and live on the edge of life, like, seem crazy to the people who are living a real trustless life. Or mm. if they're putting all their trust in the government, you know, a too trustful life. And I was just like, this is interesting. I'm like, And this relates back to Bitcoin, where it's like this trustless peer-to-peer thing that's going on, where... I just need to be okay that there's all these other people out there mining, holding the nodes and the lightning spaces and recognize that, like, 
I don't have trust in my fiat currency or the government's currencies, and I'm much more likely to trust a group of people who self-identify with that this is a place to store wealth. It's not my rent money. It's a place to store wealth. And I'm not going to be a shepherd having like a giant 300 flock of sheep on no acreage because that doesn't work. Yeah. So I'm not going to pass on all those sheep to my kids, but I could pass on this Bitcoin to them. And that was an interesting conversation you were having yesterday with the fellow around like the paper wallets. And I'm yeah. thinking about that for a bit. And I'm just like, okay, I'm, I don't have all the words yet to talk Bitcoin to most people. Yeah. But I'm just like, I see it as the most likely next thing, given just like no one's going to stop technology. It's the space that governments can't keep up with. And Satoshi, whoever they are, figured out something cool, implemented a pretty interesting thing, and it just keeps advancing. So I'd rather put some stock in that. It's a lot easier to get and move around than gold if I'm actually going to trade it to somebody. I like that you that you have that treasure chest for uh, your grandson, because that yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. Um, and I'm just like, how are they going to do stuff with that in the future? And, you know, how do we value life? How do we define wealth? I, what I can't are remember the things? name of it, but one of the most mind-bending things I've, I've heard uh, was an article, but uh, Guy Swan reads articles on Bitcoin Audible, and it was the concept of galactic-level blockchains, and the time preference being extreme, and yeah. the, the way that, like, different civilizations would communicate with other civilizations was through blockchain. And I, Interesting. with what we're talking about, I can't go deep into it, but it, it sounded stupid when I just heard the title, but I'm like, if Guy read it, it's probably good, so I'll listen to it anyway. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was actually incredible, uh, the idea that, it would actually be a way to communicate across these vast chasms. And it comes from the perspective of we're probably not going to be living like Star Trek and hanging out with each other. If, if there are other civilizations, like the distances are such that, but if you had yeah. like a block time of 10,000 years, right, then you could have this kind of time check situation. It was, it was really cool. And, and, they would come back to, well, why do you trust? Like, don't. I can verify. It just takes 10,000 years to verify this block versus right. 10 minutes to verify this block. And like, Interesting. The reason I, I, I love Bitcoin is it's the first monetary good that we've ever had that requires trust in no one. Totally. It, it, because anybody, like if you think about even gold and silver, they're, they were great forms of money for the time, and they're still yep. stores of value, but if I give you a silver coin, you're sitting there looking at it going, this is probably legit because it feels about an ounce. It looks right. But you don't really know that that is a actual, you know, 99% silver wrap. You don't know that you're trusting it. You're trusting the mint stamp on it. You're trusting – but if you had a, a way, you could put a tester on there. And sure. it said immediately, this is exactly what it says it is. And that little light came on. Well, that's what running a node is in Bitcoin. So anybody can self-verify. And that's totally. that's something we've never had. And then you also can move it at the speed of light. We're kind of derailing from the <laughs> discussion. But what it does is it opens the ability for us to do commerce. If I send you a tenth of a Bitcoin, you're good. You know. You got it. And you know it's not counterfeit. And you know it's legit. And I, if I wanted to send you the equivalent of a tenth of Bitcoin in silver, I have to mail it to you. 
Yep. And, you know, I sell a membership product, and I, I get half a dozen or less silver payments a year now. When I first started doing it, I got half a dozen a week. Right. Right. And now almost almost anything that's not fiat is Bitcoin. Amazing. And that just – I know I'm a microcosm, but it just shows me once you give people the ability to transact trustlessly across space-time, then – everything changes. And I think it may be a big part of eventually getting to the world that you and I want our grandchildren to live in, right? Like totally. we and probably will live in it ourselves, but like the back of this shirt says bring back seventh generational thinking. Nice. And, and that to me is what we're talking about. We start building with hard programmable money. Like we've had and hard money before. To we've had programmable money. We've never had totally. hard programmable money in one. Like, yep. But for anyone out there who's wondering, like, how Bitcoin ties into what we're talking about today, because there's not middle people in Bitcoin in the same way that you have, whether it's gold, silver, fiat, whatever, yeah. you're eliminating a ruler. Yeah. There's no one who's, like, controlling that situation. That's anarchy. When we can just have whatever commerce we want between each other without someone having to dip their fingers into it, Yeah. that's part of not having a ruler. Nobody wets their beak on it, man, right? Like that's that's the old mafia movie. Yeah, let me wet my beak. No, I don't think I will. <laughs> I don't think that I will. Um, you, you, you have kiddos. Um, what kind of skills are you looking to pass down to them to make sure that, you know, when, when they're the, 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 the people in charge that they can look after themselves and hopefully guys like you and me as we get older? Absolutely. So, there's all the homestead skills, I know, from gardening to tending animals to slaughtering them to, you know, kitchen skills to trade skills to even being able to, like, manage your finances, possibly even having some form of, like, small business, entrepreneurship, all of that stuff's on the table. Obviously, you want your kids to, like, read and write and do mathematics if they're interested in other languages, that's great. Having some coding skills or just recognizing that it's out there and being able to, like, build a website. You know, basic computer knowledge out there. Uh, the old surviving, surviving in the woods. So my eldest daughter is in a school called Wolf Kids, and it's essentially like a primitive skills school. So they're weaving baskets out of stuff that they're, you know, willow branches that they're picking. They're making debris shelters and spending a night in that. They're learning to use a bow drill to make fire and sitting by a fire for like some portion of a night to the whole night depending on how old they are and levels of competency. They have all the knife skills that they need as they're developing those things. Um, then I go into like, I think everyone should also learn some amount of music. And I say that from the perspective of, to me, music is one of these pieces that connects to spirit and however you want to view spirit. And it gives you a potential of, like, a straight connect. Like, once you gain a mild competency with an instrument, and that instrument could be your voice, it opens up this realm of awareness where it's like, oh, who or what is actually making this music? Like, when you just follow your creative impulses, like, what is that that's making this seem interesting to go through? And then in that spiritual like learning meditation should be part of it. I also think that learning massage is something that every kid should learn. Like the idea that you 
grow up, you get out of school, you get married and have a kid, it's like nobody, like you might see people conversing and having like, you know, relationship issues and resolving them. And that can be good demonstration. I think that people who can just turn on the computer and get all this crazy porn stuff and that that's where you're learning about sex is dumb. I think that the ability to like give a good foot or hand massage, even to like a grandparent or whatever, that like there's a level of connection and tending and care that goes into that. That's just great. The ability to like massage your own self is amazing. And then if you want to extend that out into your local community, because sometimes people get like sore shoulders from doing too much work and being too repetitive. It's like not being afraid to just get in there and rub that out. It's not actually difficult. And, you know, in the mainstream culture, I'm pretty sure it's like touch averse, especially after like these last few years. And I'm just like, I think we could actually have a touch positive culture where it's like you're hanging out by a fire, you're talking story and someone's like, Oh, my back, my shoulders. And someone can just go over and like gently put a knee into your back while working on your shoulders. It's like, Oh, you feel so much better. And then the differences in mind view, mindset and worldview that can take place by educating your kids, recognizing that there are all these other cultures in the world that have all these other ideas. Like I'm talking to my daughter about like there's places in the world where girls do not get educated. There's places in the world where only the rich men have the right to participate in society. There's and you know, the more you can just be aware of those things and, again, pick up the pieces that are beneficial and drop the ones that are negative, I think the better off we're going to be. There's also a piece of, like, having a gratitude practice. Like, recognizing, like, every day I wake up, wow, this is a blessed opportunity that I have to be alive and to do something. And, oh, goodness, the sun is still shining today? That's incredible. Who knows when that will stop? Having gratitude for, like, the smallest and the most insignificant things all the way up to like whatever major achievement we've done because I see a lot of people out there and their kids will be like you just gave them some awesome gift and then five minutes later they're like ah who cares whatever and blah 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 and they'll even say that to the person's face you're like uh maybe you don't understand how this works the less gratitude you have the less I care about doing anything for you yeah 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 and and I see that even with adults who are like ask a friend for help and it's like, oh, can I borrow your car? I need and a tool. And then they bring it back. The car's on empty, and the tool's broken. Yeah. And they're like, thanks. And you're like, yeah. I'm sorry, that gratitude doesn't pass. I actually want my car to have at least as much gas as I put in it, and I want my tool to work. And if it broke, please Dude, replace it. if you it. loan me your car on empty, I'm returning it at full. Right? Right. You know, I mean, like, that's a tank of gas in return for running your car for a day or two. And I, yeah. yeah. And even teaching the kids that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, it sounds like your grandson is starting to get into, like, power tools and things like that. Yeah. And it's like there's a way to care for those things so that they continue to work, and there's a way to treat them like crap. And so just, like, that proper care of all the different tools, no matter what they are. I think – go ahead. uh, And, like, balancing a checkbook, learning how, like, to manage – if you're using credit cards still, how to use a credit card wisely, how to, you know – Apply, go to the bank and talk to a bank person and, you know, understand how to invest, whether it's, like, we don't have 401ks here in Canada, but just how to invest your money wisely for your future so that you're not getting raked over the coals. And to be able to diversify in that and have some intelligence and, like, oh, you want this shiny new fidget toy because your other friends are using it. Is that actually a good use of your money and the time and energy it took to get that? 
or do you want to say about my daughter is interested in baking? So she's like, I want a KitchenAid stand mixer. I'm like, okay, we're not just going to go buy that for you. <laughs> so, but she raised the money to get one. Yeah. And it was just like, in doing that, then she's like, okay, now I'm going to make yummy treats to give to the people who sponsored this. Yeah. And then now she's using that. She has like a small, instead of a CSA, it's a CSB, so Community Supported Baking. Yeah. Project that she does every so often where she'll send a message out to her email list and be like, hey, this weekend I'm going to, to do another batch of whatever amazing thing she's making. Yeah. And then they provide some money. Then they come and they get cupcakes or muffins or cookies, whatever it is. And it's just like, yeah, no, you have to greet the people who come. You have to engage you have to with do them. It. Yeah, you got to look them in the eyes when they come and say, thank you for supporting me. And receive the feedback without shying away from it. Yeah. Because it, and just like, you know, so here's a funny story about my kid. I had to go off island for a moment, do some shopping and car-related stuff. And I left her in this waiting room, and there's a bunch of old people sitting in there, and she's working on a knitting project. And so she brings her knitting stuff in there, and she plops herself down. And I'm gone for, like, five to seven minutes talking to the clerk. And I come back, and I sit down across from her in the room, and this old lady turns to me with her hand up and is like, your daughter's amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, she's literally been in here for, like, five minutes. Yeah. And she's just chatting with them about yeah. all kinds of stuff going on, and I'm just like, you're basically a person and you can talk to all these older people like older than me people without any like one way or another about it and I was like okay you're constantly getting the feedback that this parenting thing is going well I think each kid's different so I'm curious to see how my other two that are two in four months yeah go yeah yeah I I I, but I hear a, a theme Running through all of this, it's kind of the theme that I try to to bring to my grandkids now, and I always do with my son. Is the biggest skill I'm trying to teach is self regulation. So like, I, I as an anarchist, I take most of the authority around me and cast it off, and somehow I'm not dead because right. I don't go do things that are illegal just to be spiteful of the fact that they're illegal or things that you shouldn't do just because you shouldn't do them. So. Yep. Um, I have foxglove that grows on my property because it's a pretty plant, but it's also digitalis and will kill you. I don't go oh, yeah. eat it because I'm not supposed to to prove that I can do what, you know. So there's a self-regulation yep. that we all have. And what I try to teach my grandkids now, and I always try to teach my son, was I hate rules for you. I don't want mm -hmm. any rules for you. But we have them. And yep. so you're not going to end up dead, sick, in jail, kicked out of things you want to be involved in, right? Yep. So. Every time you give me the opportunity, by demonstrating that you don't require the rule, I'll remove the rule. And if I have any rules for you by the time you're 18 years old, I have failed. Totally. Absolutely. And that is a totally – like, that is the exact opposite of what kids hear. Kids constantly hear, you need to do what we say, and you need to do what we say forever. Like, the right. establishment, the school system and all are like, this is – like, your permanent record will follow you forever. Now – I don't know about you. I've never seen my permanent record. I think Sasquatch flew away with my permanent record in a satchel oh, over yeah. his shoulder on the back of a unicorn across the rainbow, and it disappeared, oh, yeah. right? But we have this, this nonsensical crap that we pour into kids as a society that, like, you must obey these things forever. Where what I want to teach is you must not do stupid shit that, that wrecks your own life. That's right. And if you're not going to do that, then I'm okay with what. Ever you do, even if it's not what I would do. 
Yep. And it's amazing. Like, I think kids don't, like, when I have that conversation with my six-year-old granddaughter, it's over the head. But, you know, my 11-year-old grandson's really starting to grasp that. And as I think back oh, yeah. to his dad, it was about the same age that, like, well, why would I have rules for you? I remember this with my son. Like, he was 11 or 12. Why would I have a rule for you if if you didn't ever do the thing that I had the rule against in the first place? And he's like, mm-hmm. well, you wouldn't. That would be stupid. I'm like, Exactly. So the day that you can take care of yourself, my rules go away. And that's my goal in life, to get to get to as few rules as quickly as possible. Absolutely. To which, like, my two-year-old the other day, it's starting to get cold here. And, you know, in the summertime, it's okay to run around naked when you're a two-year-old. Yeah. And so she was like, I don't want to wear clothes. Okay. And so for a moment, we were like, you know, we're not going anywhere. So if you want to go outside and be cold. Yeah, go learn what it's like to be cold for a moment. And then you'll learn not to do that. (laughs) And and so, you know, what happens when you go outside and it's cold and you're not wearing clothes? You get a runny nose. Yeah. And in this day and age, you're like, I'm sorry. You're going to have to stay home today now because you have a runny nose. Yeah. And so we meet everyone on Mondays where we live to get together, and all the kids are then playing together. Yeah. So it was a Monday, and we're like, you have a runny nose. You're staying home. She's like, I want to go and play with my friends. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. I'm telling you it's cold outside. Yeah. And that you need to wear your clothes. Yeah. You need to wear your clothes because you get a snotty nose if you don't. Yeah. And when you have a snotty nose, you can't play with your friends. So I'm yeah. telling you, you need to wear your clothes so that you can play with your friends. Yeah. I don't care. You don't want to wear clothes. You want to get sick. I mean, it's a hassle for sure. Yeah. But the real reason is I want you to play with your friends. Yeah. You want that too. And so rather than having like a no that we're giving them or like a rule set, it's like, What's their motivating reasons to do something? And I see so many parents either not stand behind their no, which is a terrible thing to do, as well as n- not giving the kids their their own motivating reason for why they want to do something. Yeah. The, the only reason I can't do it is you said I can't. Like that. It's if, like, if nobody wants kids that are coming reason. away with you're not teaching them anything because that's right. And I've seen this like. My nephew, his high school girlfriend was, like, one of those kids, like, the parents completely controlled, like, tracked mm-hmm. everywhere she went with her phone, couldn't go. Like, she couldn't come here for his birthday party because other boys would be here, right? Mm-hmm. But she's going to go off to college in San Antonio. I live in the Dallas area. Well, so two things happened the, the, the day that she left. One was she went completely off that reservation, and two was a week later she broke up with my nephew. And I was like, well, I'm not surprised by either one, because this person basically was held captive. Right. So when you let a captive go, either they they stay captive, right? They they, they ref- you open the cage and the bird won't leave. Yeah. But most of the time they go complete batch of crazy. Well, it's a human that human's been formulating in its mind for 18 years. When yeah. I get free, I'm going to go do all this. And, and probably, you know, kind of lost touch with her because she was through a nephew anyway, and I don't really spend that much time talking to 18-year-old girls. But right. um, I'm pretty sure that whatever happened after we lost knowledge was probably worse because you nev- that person never learned self-regulation. And then right. they were also dealing with, like, all this hostility of always feeling restricted where, you know, if you train a child right, people will hate when I say this, but in some ways it's like training a dog correctly. Like, I don't want mm-hmm. the dog to associate me with the negative consequence. I want the dog to associate the negative behavior with the negative consequence. Absolutely. So if you allow the child to make, like, pick the mistakes you let them make. The mistake yep. you let her make, 
not that big a deal. Inconvenient for you, too, but once or twice, and it stops, then you don't have to deal with it ever again That's because it. the behavior itself causes a negative consequence. Not yep. dad gave me a negative consequence. I gave myself one. Mm-hmm. Raising little anarchists. That's the only way to do it. Pretty much. <laughs> what, are, what are your thoughts on wealth? I mean, this is something I think that we, we don't discuss enough. Um, I think that our vision of wealth in the modern age is completely divorced from true wealth in many ways. Um, I've had money and I've not had money, and having money sucks less for sure. I mean, totally. but I think that, like, the money to me is a means to an end. Yep. Like, when all the COVID craziness went on, and I'm like, I have my own little fiefdom here, my beautiful property. Like, I, my life just didn't change. Like, don't go outside. You can't tell me what to do. And I just went off my life. And I think that having a mix of what modern-day wealth is supposed to be in, in the form of capital and money and property, but also having the lifestyle that was basically unmoved was, totally. was more important than the money. Yes. Now, I was listening to uh, what, the Pimp Cast a week, several weeks ago, uh, yeah. Billy Bond. Yeah. And the lady's name was The Real Erin, and I don't remember her last name, was chatting. And her, what she said about wealth was that wealth is what's between your ears. And the yeah. knowledge that, like, riches is the cash, gold, Bitcoin, whatever, that you're holding. So you can lose all your riches, and as long as you have wealth, you're going to rebuild the riches. And I was like, that's actually... A pretty potent thing you know the wealth is like to me is also like our health you mentioned lifestyle like i work three maybe four days a week doing labor work for people and then the other four to three days a week i'm you know i'm here one day doing stuff on the land with people but then i have two days that are with my family for sure maybe three because i find valuing the time with my family brings more wealth into my life and the life of my kids than having to be gone working a whole bunch. I also think that play is a form of wealth. Like, in this men's group that I'm a part of, we basically play something different every Tuesday evening. And just that notion that, like, oh, I get to, like, do these things that are literally just fun. It's great to do, you know, have side hustles and constantly be like, I'm building the riches yeah. That's important to do. You know, obviously your life will be more comfortable with more riches. But at a certain point, it seems like that's actually not true. At a certain point, it's just a headache if you don't know what to do with the excess riches. And along with that, I like this game of, like, the seed lottery. So you mentioned uh, the other day the, was it the snake bean that yeah. you experimented with and loved? Yeah. And that you'll buy, like, you know, four or five other seeds to try out to see what might work. That, to me, is the seed lottery. You know, you're spending, like, five bucks or whatever a pack of seeds. And, you know, you're not going to win on every one of them. But when you do win, it's like, oh, that was good, and I'm going to do that again. I sort of see, like, people buying Bitcoins the same way. It's a bit of a lottery. Like, don't just put your whole life savings into it, people, and definitely don't put your rent money in it. But buy a little bit over time, and with a long enough time horizon – I think that lottery is going to pay out. Relationships are kind of a form of wealth as well. You know, the more community that you have around you that you can actually count on rather than just being a solo person or even a couple, it makes life easier. I built a chicken coop since moving here, and I had two friends come 
and help with that project. It went way smoother with them. The house I'm living in right now, there was a problem with the roof. And so over in August, I took the whole roof off over the course of a weekend, and I lifted a section of the roof as well to make a new room. I'm yeah. still working on the room space, but I had, I forget, I think it was something like 18 different friends come by and help over the course of that four-day weekend. And it was just like everything went so much smoother and swifter by having all of that community and help on hand. And I see the same thing for trees as, like, a lottery thing, too. You might buy a whole swack of trees, and maybe, like, 50% of them make it. It's like, well, that other 50%, you lost the lottery. And then the question is, like, when will they start producing whatever it is they produce? Some years it's a bumper crop of apples, as a for instance, and other years you get none. That's mm-hmm. the yearly lottery on apples. And when you have those different kinds of wealth, you can do different things with them. And, again, that ability to share with other people when you have that excess, it builds more wealth because, and that's like your social wealth. So there's like the physical capital, like the riches portion. There's your mental capital, which is your ability to troubleshoot whatever happens in your life and take on new skill sets. There's, there's a spiritual wealth, which is like when we're having a conversation, we're coming from two different worldviews or two different, you know, backgrounds on things. The ability to like rest in your own acceptance of yourself and not feel like the other person is, even if they are trying to persuade you onto what they're saying, just like, I'm, I don't need to move in here, but if you have a good point, I'll consider that and then take it on. Rather than all these people who are so easily manipulated by just like whatever comes across the screen at them, because so many people don't have a foundation in a spiritual path or a tradition or self-experience. Yeah, I, I almost think it comes down to, like, with the money side of it, because all mm-hmm. of these things are made easier with some money. Like, sufficient money brings mental freedom, and excessive money brings mental illness is, is almost what it seems like. When I see a person who has more money than they could ever spend, more money than their kids could ever spend, more money than their grandkids could ever spend, and they're on a quest for more money – I I, you know, I think back to like when I, I did a a podcast with Toby Hemingway about a year before he passed away on on anarchism and he said that in indigenous societies that person that constantly wanted more and more and more eventually the men kind of took them aside and said okay you can either stop it you can leave or we can kill you because they mm-hmm. recognized that as sociopathy okay. and, and we probably all have at least some piece of that in us and it, there's you know, one person can use drugs and then stop using drugs and use them recreationally, and another person becomes an addict, and you think it's just bio, biochemical, but it could have been that the person that was able to easily transition back and forth, had they lived a different life and had different mental and spiritual problems, would have become the addict, and the addict would never, like, you don't know when that person becomes able to acquire that wealth, how it's going to affect them. And, and and I think the the bifurcation point to where it's unhealthy is uh, Buckminster Fuller during one of his rants inside his patent. So he would put things in his patent that had nothing to do with the patent so that it would be preserved because it would go to the patent office. So in his patent on a geodesic dome of, of, of specific design, he one of his footnotes that wealth was the ability to survive a given number of days forward. Mm. Right. When that number becomes longer than you can expect to live and it's not enough for you, I think then you've gone over to unhealthy. 
And and to be fair, there are there are very wealthy people that are still very engaged in doing things, but they don't seem to really care about the scorecard of money anymore. Now it's since I have the money, I should go do the things. But they, right. they seem to be the exception rather than the rule. And I would also say to that that while I was traveling on my bicycle during those years, I very personally did not try to work. I was like, most of the world lives on like a dollar to three a day. Yeah. I bet I can do that. I live in the most affluent country in the world. Yeah. Uh, our waste stream has more resources in it than most people ever come across in their life. And the notion that when I would go someplace, I obviously had my instruments with me, which is like a skill set. Mm-hmm. And so that's a form of wealth. Um, but the ability to bring those your skill sets into a given area and apply them for the benefit of that space is a form of wealth that can often get you beyond what the money could get you. And so a lot of great connections happen during those years of traveling or being in Hawaii just from having different skill sets that I used when the moments were appropriate. And I didn't take the opportunity, but an acquaintance of mine was running a hydroponic setup where they were doing lettuce, and they were selling that to Costco, and they would run workshops on, like, how to do this for yourself. Yeah. And after meeting me, they were like, Reed, if you ever want to come and take our course, you can just come and take it. We just like who you are and just come and be this. And that recognition of, like, who you are really matters so much. It will open up way more doors than just having money because there's plenty of people with money who are just like, I I don't need you in my life. You're What skill set or thing are you putting on the table? Because if it's just money, I have that. And I'm good. And I want to go do the things rather than just staying on make more money tracks. And See, so, you're one of the people I've met that's just literally fearless. And, and what I find in – and that doesn't mean you don't have any fears, but as far as life in general, you're fearless. Like, it'll be all, it'll work itself out. I'll be all right. And what I find is that people that live that way, either because of circumstance or choice, lost everything. And not necessarily mm-hmm. lost. may have just walked away from everything. So dude that hooks up a 13-foot trailer to a bike – and says, I'm just going to travel around and do whatever and try to avoid work, pretty much lived homeless, right? So when you say, well, we'll take what you have, I don't care, right? And people that go through major tragedies in their life, but they survive it and come out strong on the other side, like, well, I already lost everything once. Yep. You know, when I was, when I was young, like, one of the keys to, like, getting new opportunities and promoted in, in work was my literal attitude was I was looking for a job and I found this one. I don't right. need you, and therefore you actually became more valuable to the person who you didn't need. That's and, right. you know, when you go through wilderness training and you go out into the woods and you live for a week on your own with the stuff that you can carry on your back, you're like, well, if I had to, I can serve. I don't want to live this way, but I can. So anything yep. above this is good. Yep. Right? So I think that people that have had some experience or they've been through – a terminal illness that wasn't terminal. They thought they were going to die, and they fought it, and they came back, and they're living healthy now. Like, people that have been through anything like that, they tend to live a fearless life, and you almost wish that you could give it to somebody. Well, it's kind of like we, I, 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 we, I don't we know would really benefit. I would want that. Like, would it ruin it? Like, you know, like, you know, if you could take what you got through life experience and hand it to somebody, would it be like giving them, like when your daughter wanted the sand mixer, if you just gave it to her, it would not have the value that it was because she earned it. Certainly. And a lot of people in, you know, the Western world are lacking rites of passage. 
So yeah, we have this brother. ridiculous thing of like adolescence, where it's like most cultures you were a boy and then you were a man, or a woman, a girl and then a woman, and there was a clear rite of passage to enter that new stage of life. And even just in all those different pieces you're speaking to, all of them from like almost dying or losing your job are all living on the edge of your life. And when you do that, you experience more life. You remember how precious this life is and the notion of like, yeah, I could drop all this now and go and do a different thing or figure it out when I get there if I don't know exactly what I'm going for. But just, I would rather be alive and living than to go in the same, you know, tire-treaded track that everyone else has gone down. And where are the lemmings going right now anyway? And so, you know, I think a lot of people over these last couple of years have really woken up to the notion that, like, the current systems don't care about us. The idea of healthcare, that's really just, like, keep pushing illnesses. As yeah. long as you're sick, we can make money from you. When you and, when you equate care with insurance, you've clearly not you're not talking about healthcare. That's like, right. You don't call your car insurance car maintenance. Totally right. They're not the same thing. Yeah. You're and definitely so, on something too with the rites of passage. Like I've talked about that a lot. That we used to have, like every indigenous society has kind of ritual that brings yeah. boy to man and girl to woman. Absolutely. I don't think it matters what it is. I think it matters mostly that it is, that it's a thing. Totally. And that when you do that, you're, you generally speaking, have, you know, whatever your community is to witness, at least in the, when you come back. Like, you might leave and go just, like, with one other person or a group of people out to, for that rite of passage. And then once you've completed that or failed, then you come back and you are a witness in either your having succeeded or failed by the group. And if you failed, then you're probably going to have to go out next year and do it again and just keep doing it until you pass. Because really, we can't function in a society of boys and girls. That doesn't really work in the That's another way. problem, too, that we, we even say that we're ra- – I, I hate the term raising children. Absolutely. I'm not raising children. I'm raising young adults. Yep. They are children, but that's not my job to keep them there. I'm not tending children. I'm raising adults. Absolutely. And just that notion that a lot of people seem like they're trying to keep children innocent or young or at a particular developmental stage. I'm just like, if they're interested in something, let them learn about it. So with my 11-year-old daughter, she's experienced two births at home now. And while my wife is gestating the young, there's um, a book by Alex Gray. I think it's called Sacred Mirrors. He's a an artist who will do – he, like, worked at a coroner's office for a while, dissecting okay. bodies and all that. And so he's incredible at drawing out the muscles and the bones and the veins and the arteries. and the Like organs. Leonardo da Vinci sketches of the body. Just like that, except that he also puts in, like, the meridians of, like, Chinese acupuncture in there and chakras of the Indian-based system into it. And then he goes and he has a series where it's him and his wife, and they are creating their daughter. And so from the point of inception, right through all the periods of gestation, seeing the fetus growing in the womb and all that, he's got all that in great detail through the process of, like, giving birth and after afterwards. And when she was like, what's happening? I was like, let's open this up, and you can see what's happening. And just having that kind of, like, That's really detailed look at, like, 
this is what's going on. This is what it's about. What are your questions? And then just answering the questions as they come up. With you know, and I think that's easier again if you're coming from a place where it's it's okay to like you know hug your children and it's okay to like show affection to your wife or your partner, and it's just like you know when your grandparents come over you give them hugs. It's just like it's not a big deal. Oh, grandma's shoulder shirts. I'm gonna just massage them. It's, you know, it's just part of life and part of caring for each other. And you know, when you grow up, my daughter, and you eventually have a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, like. I hope that you're able to communicate about how you want to be touched in a way that brings more pleasure and joy into your own life. Because if you're getting beat up in the situation, I hope you kill the dude or the lady <laughs> or whatever. Like, I'm going to still love you so much. I don't care. Like, you know, if it's, if it's self-defense, go almost all the way, right? <laughs> Depending on what they're going to do. Well, if my, when I think of my granddaughter and you say something like that, it's like, well, if you don't, then grandpa's going to, so. Right. You know, like, it, there's things that we don't allow. And we're talking about kids here. For anybody that's watching the video and thinks it might be rude that I'm eating while he's talking, my grandkids made me food and brought it to me. Oh, that's so And sweet. when your grandkids bring you food, you eat it while it's hot. Absolutely. So that's why I've been scarfing a little bit of grandkids' uh, chow here. Um, anyway, I also, you, you were talking about home births. And like, so you guys have done this now. You live on a small yep. island. There is a hospital there, so that changes the question I was going to have for you. Like, I have a, a friend, and they do home births, and their last one, they had to, like, care flight to the hospital. So do you mm-hmm. have concerns? I mean, how, how do you handle kind of rural setting, home birth? How do you make that work? Sure. So this is our third one, and I'm hoping to put an end to having kids after this. Um, however, with that, um, each of them was a very different experience. Um, we, our first child was completely unassisted. There was like a doula on site. But other than that, um, we just had a couple friends who ended up showing up to be of mild assistance um, late in the process and then afterwards. The second child who was born here on Salt Spring Island. Uh, we utilized the midwife system that's present here. And we found it was like slightly intrusive, you know, they have the ways that they want to, like, test and check up on the kid, and then they're trying to, like, I don't know what all the different drugs are that they give the lady to help her out and stuff, but they're yeah. asking, like, hey, do you want this or that? And when someone's giving birth, it's a lot. It's a big experience. You're only, you know. Yeah. So the last thing I want is to be asked some question about some chemical thing that I have almost no idea about because I stay pretty uninformed by and large. And my wife, who had drawn up a really nice, like, um, birthing document yeah, with all these kind of questions laid out with answers, I couldn't even find that stuff when it was there. <laughs> um, but that child was born without any difficult, essentially without difficulty, and it was pretty great. So our last child, uh, who was born in our new home, and uh, was born in a birthing tub, an inflatable one, the midwives on the island were going through different bureaucratic difficulties, and so there was technically no births happening on the island at the time. Like, if you were going to have a kid, they were telling you, you need to go off-island, go rent an Airbnb for, like, a month to make sure that you're there when the kid's born um, for a maternity ward that would take you. And so we were like, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, my wife is also uh, very socially engaged person, and so she had, I think it was called a birthing council, 
with just like an open conversation for ladies on the island around like giving birth here and the current challenges that we're facing. And at that meeting were some other ladies who are midwives but are not registered. So they don't have like a legal thing that they're doing that with. But they basically gave out like a little crayon written card of like, here's my name and number, and if you need help or want help, feel free to ring. Um, so when my wife went into labor, she had a few friends who came by to be supportive, which is amazing. I recommend that anyone who does a home birth have some group of like three to five likely ladies who are going to be there to be support structures. Because frankly, ladies know how to care for each other oftentimes better than men. And having that kind of care that they want there is better than me who's just going to be like, I'm just going to make my old same breakfast and uh, go on to the day. And so <clears throat> after the birth, um, there were complications. There was uh, some hemorrhaging that was taking place and the bleeding wasn't stopping. And so one of those ladies that we had as a friend, uh, as a massage therapist, one of her clients happens to be one of the midwives who does work on island and was able to contact her to be like, I can't give you a massage today. I'm at this friend's birth. There's complications. Can you go into the hospital to be ready for her when she arrives? Because we're going to have to call the ambulance pretty soon to come. Our midwife friend had come over, who was amazing. Like a person who, she had lived over in France for many years and was doing midwifery over there. Um, and so she was able to help regulate my wife's experience and was like, you should actually go and get, uh, you know, more care. We can't really do everything here for you. So we called the ambulance. They came. They picked my wife and I up and the newborn. My other two children stayed with some of these friends who were here. And we went off to the hospital. At the hospital, the midwife had been there and waiting. There was also another, I don't know what they're, all the nurse ladies are called, but a nurse who's more in the birthing world was there. And the midwife lady pulled out all these blood clots from inside. That's extreme stuff, but, you know, that's yeah. going to happen with births. And had basically resolved the situation at our local hospital. However, we don't have a maternity ward at the hospital, and so just for observational purposes, they're like, we're going to fly you in the helicopter over to Vancouver Island, and you can spend a night in the hospital over there. So I'm then at the hospital. My wife's like, okay, I'm going to go on a helicopter with our newborn. Yeah. And she's like, I'm basically fine. It's just for observation. I'm like, okay, I still need to figure out what's happening with our other kids. Yeah. And I had gone in the ambulance, so I also need to arrange for my vehicle to get to me. Yeah. With the, with the car seat and all the stuff. So that happened relatively gracefully. We went over to the hospital. We stayed over there, which was actually a lovely space to be from the context of it was quiet. Yeah. For whatever reason, like, the maternity ward there, and I guess it was pretty busy, but the rooms yeah. are really well insulated, so you don't hear all the screaming babies. Yeah. And then we didn't have two other children wanting to just be in our faces, like, so excited about the situation. Yeah. So we, we both got slightly better rest. Her bleeding had stopped. Everything was good the next day, and so we were able to leave without any without uh, too much interference from the hospital in that regard. And... You know, it's funny because they ask you, you know, oh, do you want this shot for your kid or that shot for your kid? Do you want to book this other shot for your kid? And what about this shot and this test and this other shot? And I'm just like, nope. And then right before we leave, this one lady doctor comes in and is like, so 
maybe you and your husband want to get tested for syphilis while you're here. And I was just like, syphilis, you say? <laughs> yeah, there's a, like a, it's on an uptick here in the community. And I'm like, well, one thing, we're not in this community. Yeah. For another thing, we've been married for 12 years. Yeah. Um, don't the signs of syphilis show themselves before that point? She's like, oh, yeah, they do. Then I can just tell you right now, okay. we don't have it. Yeah. We're good, you know, we're and I don't need to be tested for it. Yeah. And uh. So then we came back home, and it's been re- essentially pretty smooth. I mean, when you lose that much blood because of blood clots, it takes a long time for your body to replenish itself. And when you're breastfeeding at the same time, you're like – you're feeding for two. You got to eat like you're eating for three. So, having really yes, strong iron supplements around, yeah. eating lots of bone broth and red meats was just like on the table as things to do. And so, if you are going to have a home birth, try to make sure that your, you know, whatever preserves you have around are stocked on the heavy with those iron-rich foods, so that way you can feed your partner that when they come home. Another thing, if you're doing whether it's a home birth or otherwise, there's um, meal trains that happen. There's a website for this where you can create it online. But it's an opportunity for your local community to bring you a meal a day, basically. And it, it's free for them to sign up for it and to use this. But it, we had about a month's worth of dinners come in from our local community. And that's really helpful right after you give birth because there's so much more laundry. There's so much more everything taking place. And you're down one of your critical members of the family because they're essentially recuperating from a major life moment. So any way that you can allow help to come into your life. I know a lot of us, we don't want to ask for help. We think we should just do it all our own and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, I think that we should ask for all the help. And then when someone else is asking for help, go and help them too. You know, it's a it's a multi-way street and receive from many directions and then give in many directions. That's what creates a great community. And when we're bringing new babies into the world, you want to have that feeling of a strong network of people around you who are actually looking out for each other. So that my wife felt so much more at ease because you could feel the layers of support being present. And that was during the pregnancy, during the birth, and after the birth. And so... And unless you're, like, full trained in your medical awarenesses, there's lots of things that can happen during a birthing process that you can lose the lady or the child. And so just to be mindful that, like, this is a serious moment. Like, I wouldn't be doing open-heart surgery in the same yeah. way that I'm not going to be the person, like, birthing or being the primary person, at, you know, in charge of that. If there's an umbilical cord wrapped around the neck or the baby's, like, breaching or any of these things, it's... It's nice to have someone who's there who has seen it before. You know, it used to be in our, as like women doing their rites of passage, it was birth. Yeah. And you would have all of these older women who have been through it a whole bunch of times or seen it a whole bunch of times yeah. show up and they would know things that like, hey, maybe a generation or two ago it was that someone had one of these issues come up and they would know what to do. Yeah. And so to bring all that knowledge set back into your local community so that we can have these births where we won't be pressured into whatever medical treatments they're trying to do to the kids at unreasonable ages. You know, and I think that the more we can do that, the less we'll have to. The fact Mm -hmm. that you can often means you don't have to. Uh, Because there are people that I've talked to people that were doing the home birth thing, and then, like, 
toward the end of the third trimester, the midwife, whoever they were working with, would say, yeah, you shouldn't do that this time. Like, there was a yeah. complication that could be seen in advance. I'm like, this needs to be in a hospital. So there will be times when we have to do that. But when people don't have to rely on the hospital, the hospital stops becoming this hegemony that tells you totally. you don't have all these injections into your child or what have you. It's, yep. it's, yeah. And, and, and if you people know, are interested in this, um, you can check out the Free Birth Society. They have a lot of good information on this. And there's a lady named Ida May who uh, was at the farm in Tennessee who was doing a lot of work in the birthing world. So if you're interested in that, I invite you to check uh, both of those places out for more resources on that. Very cool, Reed. Well, this has been a great discussion. you want to tell people uh, how they can find out more about you? Sure. Uh, you can go to my website, benningreads.com. It's up on the screen there. That's great. Thanks for that. And you can also go to my YouTube channel, which I think has the same name. And I don't know how this is going to work, Jack, but I liked when you had the welder on this past week, and he was like, let's give away a welding unit. And I was like, oh, that's good. Oh, I'm going to be on. I should figure out something to do for people, too. Okay. And so I was like, I wrote this book. Let's see if it shows up there. There yep. it goes. It's and, oh, yeah, that's funny for people. Oh, the, oh, anyway, the I got four of them left here. Okay. They're all shiny, so it's not going to work. Oh, there's my, my map cover. And uh, my thinking is, I am trying to get my YouTube subscriptions up to 300 so that it links up with the Odyssey and all that information can get over there. And I was like, let's see if people will – I don't know how it works well, but I would like to give these books away to people. I'd love to hit that 300 mark on the YouTube subscribers so that it can link up and we can share this information. And then I can speak all kinds of stuff over there and not worry about it disappearing. Um, And I'm in Canada, so I know there will be some – kind of rates for shipping or whatever. I'm not too worried about that. But I was thinking, uh, if you're interested in it, and I don't know how it works totally, but if people want to contact you and or me, subscribe to my YouTube channel, I'd be happy to ship out these books to some of your viewers out there. It's kind of prose writing or poetry type of stuff, free writing, and it covers a wide range of topics. And if you're questioning, like when I was talking about the mental and emotional and spiritual bodies, it gets into some of those, like, fine, nuanced spaces. And from the people who have read it, they say, like, oh, you were able to express some things here that I felt but didn't have the words for. And so if you're looking for some more, like, the words and things like that, uh, this could be a way to get into some of that. Why don't we do this, then? Since you're looking for people to subscribe to your YouTube, and there's no way Mm -hmm. for me to verify that, why don't we say that people get, I don't know, next – 48 hours, or however long you want, to subscribe to your YouTube and contact you. Say, I subscribe to your YouTube, and here's my YouTube username, yep. and then you figure out how to select four out of that. How's that sound? Sure. All right, that's so that's what it's going to be, folks, and that opens it up to people not in the live stream. That opens to the general audience. Uh, yes. There will be a link to Reed's uh, YouTube channel in the audio notes that will go live about one hour after we wrap up, and we're heading toward that now. And you can click that link and find his YouTube channel. If you don't, just go ahead and find it for yourself. You go to his website. Again, it's bendingreads.com. You can find videos there. And if you click on those videos, you can use those. Go ahead and do it right away. But then I guess they can email you. Do you want to give out your email? Yeah, it's uh, Reed Richard, spelled like Richard, and it's Reed with two E's, uh, 31 at gmail.com. Okay. So Reed 
Richard31 at gmail.com. Is that correct? That's it. All right. So that's that's the email, folks. So subscribe to the channel and then quick email over to Reed and tell him, I subscribe to your YouTube, heard you on TSP. Here's my username on YouTube, and that way you can make sure that you're not lying. And you really did subscribe because that's kind of be crappy to do. So don't do that. Make sure you subscribe before you send the email. And uh, you, you guys can work out how to get the books there on your own from that point forward. So I think that's a, that's a cool idea. And I, I really do appreciate you being with us today, Reed. This was a great discussion. Uh, it's such a pleasure to chat with you, Jack. It's really lovely to get into some of these different concepts and expand on, like, what it is to survive and to thrive and to live our best life. Well, again, I appreciate it, and uh, you're always welcome back. Take care, man. All the best. All right, guys, real quick uh, as I wrap up here, I want to remind you guys that you can always help support this show by doing your online shopping starting where? tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z. tspaz.com. Item of the day-to-day is the Lodge Carbon Steel Season Skillets. They're on sale 20% off for the the 10, the 12, and the 15 inches, which are kind of the best of, of the best out of the sizes there. You know, we talked about wealth today. And one of the things that I see as being a form of wealth is when you have a thing that's useful in your life, but it's going to outlive you. That's a form of wealth. Um, there's a lot of no-stick cookware and shit like that out there, and you usually end up throwing it away a year or two or three at best after you buy it. A good carbon steel skillet is something that should live longer than you if you take good care of it. Uh, I have some that are you know 15 years old, and they're the best ones I have because the more you use them, the better. But I brought this around today because odd things started showing up on Twitter. I don't know where these feuds come from, but there's a there's a big argument against the with the carnivore Bitcoin bros now. What's better for searing stainless steel or uh, cast iron? Well, you're both wrong. It's carbon steel. And if you go to any really badass restaurant, you go in the back and you look at what they're searing scallops and steak. You know, it's always going to be uh, carbon steel skillets. And there's a reason. It's because it works really, really well. Now, I also added something to this review for those that want to maybe go to another level. Uh, there are French-made ones that are, I'm not going to say a lot better, but a little bit more precision-made. Some of the complaints I've heard about the the carbon steel uh, ones from lodges, sometimes they say people say they're dumb. I've never had a dumb one, but the center might be a little high, things like that. I think a lot of times it's people that don't know how to cook. Right, so if you are not getting your skillet to temperature or you're getting the temperature too high or you don't realize how fast they heat up when they're empty, you can warp a skillet for sure. But um, if you want to go with the, the higher-end French-made stuff, then you can you can definitely do that. Also, real quick, wanted to remind you guys about the fold card. We talked about Bitcoin a little bit today. If you have to spend fiat dollars and you're going to spend them anyway and they take a Visa debit card, then I would use fold to pay that bill. I pay my server bill, I pay my health insurance, I pay anything that they'll let me, I pay with my fold card, and I get stats back on money I was going to spend anyway. But the big reason I'm bringing it up today, it's the last day of November. Right now, if you use the links in the video below or in the audio notes for today's podcast, and you sign up for fold today if you haven't done so, you'll get 20,000 sets when you sign up through my link, and that ends today. So if you're listening to it on December 1st, you should get fold anyway, but you won't be getting those 20,000 sats. Uh, with that, 
we'll go ahead and wrap up. I really appreciate you guys uh, being with me today. I did want to announce we do have a sale running on Member Support Brigade, though. The, uh, the, the, the discount code is really, really easy to remember. It's Christmas, all one word, Christmas. And uh, you can get MSB for 35 bucks a year instead of 50 Just the discounts we talked about with the two sponsors alone today, it, it would more than cover it just from those discounts. There's about 70 total discount partners in the MSB. So I've been saying I'll give you a, a discount code, and I just haven't gotten around to doing it. had a lot of technical issues recently that I've had to work out, so we've got those worked out. So, hey, consider becoming a member today. And uh, it wouldn't make a bad gift Christmas present either to give somebody a membership in our member support brigade. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.